Our scripture reading comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, and I invite you to turn with me on page 1,499. Listen now to God's holy word. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear all his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Morning. Claire is a far more eloquent reader than myself, and so... I paid her extra to stay up for that. Thank you, Cliff. Well, again, this morning we will be um, jumping back into Matthew's gospel. We began a series on the gospel of Matthew at the beginning of December, and we investigated the first two chapters of this gospel. And then on Christmas Eve, we went over to Luke's uh, infancy narrative of Jesus, the birth narrative of Jesus, because it provides a little more detail and Um, That is where the Holy Spirit led us, and so we are now returning to Matthew's gospel, and um, we will again be on page 1499 in your pew Bibles. When we come to this moment of worship, when we come to this time in worship where we look at God's word and begin investigating it, we profess that this is God's inspired word to us. That the 66 books of the Bible are God's communication to us. That this is what he deemed fit to say. And it contains all information that is necessary to be saved and to live in right relationship with him. And so when we come to the scriptures, we come reverently. We come not taking for granted this opportunity that the Lord has given us. We take it seriously. And so this morning, before we jump into the scripture, before we begin investigating it, uh, let us go to him in prayer. So please bow with me. (coughs) Father, this morning, we delight in you. And Lord, as we close out 
the year 2023, we think back of all that has gone on. Many of us have wept. Many of us have been broken. Many of us have been healed, and many of us rejoice. And Father, you have been involved in the midst of it all, and you have done mighty things. So Lord, this morning we ask that as we close out this year, that we would not be quick to forget all of your great works and all that you have done, how you have never failed, how your love for us has never run dry, how your care and commitment to your people is renewed every day. And so, Father, this morning we delight in the worship of you. We pray now that as we investigate your word that you would give us ears to hear and that you would illuminate our hearts so that it might be transformed, that we would walk in step with you and we would take this gospel message to the world. And so, Father, be with us now as we dive into your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, page 1499 in your pew Bible. It will also be on the screens. Um, Matthew is an interesting gospel. It is primarily written to a Jewish or Hebrew audience. And we are going to dive into a portion that introduces us to an extremely important character today. A character that there's only a few bits of information about this man, John the Baptist, who we all know or know something of. Um, but he serves a vital role in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're not going to go further than jo uh, Matthew chapter 3. Um, because there's more, especially in Matthew chapter 11 and other portions. John is such an important figure, though, that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually begin with the stories of John the Baptist. He is included in all four of the Gospels. He's not skipped over in a single passage. Uh, we get interesting details and different details in each book about him, but he is a vital figure to what's going on. So we want to do two things in our time together today. One, we want to investigate who John the Baptist is. And then two, we want to investigate what John the Baptist says. Because when we understand who he is and what he says, we will begin to then understand what God is calling us to for this new year. So Claire has already read the passage for us. We will dive back in over time. Um, but over Labor Day weekend, back in September, my wife was invited to a work conference in Orlando. Uh, that's the home of Disney World, if you didn't know. And so we made that a family trip. My family is a Disney family. I am not typically a Disney guy, um, but I am married into a family that is a Disney family. Do you guys understand what I'm saying right now? She's, she's probably watching, and so I can't say much more. Um, so we're, we're Disney folks. We like Disney. We go down to Disney. We go to Orlando, and um, we're in the Magic Kingdom. Now, somewhere along the way, my wife's family caught wind that we were going to Disney, and they decided to join us. So this trip that was initially three grew to eight people. And again, I'm the only one not genetically related to this family. Now, men, don't, don't look at your wives right now. But there was a moment in the Magic Kingdom where we all sat down to eat. I finished quickly, 
and I thought, I'm going to go take a walk. Uh, because when you are surrounded by in-laws and God gives you an opportunity to go take a walk by yourself, <laughs> you praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow, right? <laughs> so, so I put my headphones in um, and I'm walking on Main Street USA. Main Street USA is the most iconic thing in Disney World because at the end of Main Street USA is what? Cinder, okay, three of you have been to Disney World, great. Okay, so Cinderella's Castle, and it's at the end there. And I'm looking around, and I'm, I'm totally zoned out. And uh, I love weird facts about places and things. Now, here's an interesting fact about Disney World, specifically Main Street USA. In 1964, when Walt Disney wanted to acquire land for the theme park, he knew that if he just came to these landowners and said, look, I want to build Disney World, they were going to increase the price exponentially, right? So what does Walt Disney and his team of lawyers do? They begin creating shell companies. So over the course of time, Walt Disney purchases 27,520 acres, which is roughly 43 square miles of property under the guise of several shell companies. If you're on Main Street USA and you look up, all the buildings are two stories tall. They have windows in them, and on the windows are actually the names and logos of all these shell companies that were established. So I'm just kind of minding my business, and I'm looking. There's thousands of hundreds of people, thousands of people, I don't know. And I feel a tap on my shoulder. Uh, and so I turn around, and I look, and I'm assuming it's going to be my wife or somebody. And there's a young lady. She's a cast member at the park, and she says, sir, can you go to the sidewalk? She said it nicer than that. Um, and I think you have to point with all your fingers in Disney. You can't point with one finger. And so she said, can you move to the sidewalk? And I said, sure, is there a reason? And she goes, yes, there's a parade coming through here, and we need to clear things out. I was like, oh, okay, I don't want to mess anything up. So I, I went over to the sidewalk, and it was kind of interesting to me, and I, I, I love logistics. I love seeing how things operate because there was a team that was sent out five minutes in advance of the parade, and they were going through, and they were clearing every obstacle on Main Street USA. If there was a piece of trash, they picked it up. If there was a baby stroller, they asked if somebody could move the baby stroller. If they, and they were doing it so nicely, professionally. You know how it's done in Disney. Exceedingly professional, but it worked. And they were clearing the way because a parade was coming, and at the end of that parade... Mickey Mouse, the big guy, all right? And, and so these people were heralds. They were forerunners. They were clearing the path. They were making straight the road for Mickey Mouse and his entourage to come through their kingdom. And in much the same way, John the Baptist serves as a forerunner for Jesus Christ, he comes into the land and he makes straight the paths for the Messiah to come. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He bridges the gap from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And he comes, and in Matthew chapter 3, um, and just by way of reminder, 1 and 2, Matthew 1 and 2, are primarily about the birth of Jesus and then avoiding Herod. And then Herod passes away, and then chapter 3 opens in those days. Now, we don't know exactly how long it's been. Probably been about 25 years in between chapter 2 and chapter 3. So we're in the early AD 20s at this point. Okay? Here's what it says. 
In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I want to stop right there. If you had a map of Israel, you would notice somewhat in the middle of Israel is the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is a fairly long um, sea, and up and down the coast to the left of the Dead Sea, as you're viewing it on a map, is the Judean wilderness. The Judean wilderness is difficult to inhabit. It's not a place you would readily choose to live. It is a desert area. Now, up to the north of the Dead Sea, the Jordan River flows into it, and around that area, it's a little more hospitable, and you had certain communities develop there. One was called Qumran, and if you know anything about biblical studies, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at Qumran there. There was also a sect of the Essene group, uh, who was a religious group that lived at the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Chances are that's where John the Baptist lived. We can't say definitively, uh, but that's the best educated guess we can get. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, so he's living in the desert. This is a man who has shunned modern um, or, or city living, if you will, at that time. He has gotten away from the distractions and the hustle and bustle of all that is going on. He's living in the wilderness. And again, we're looking at who John is. And then in verse 4, we learn some interesting information. Okay. Nine times out of ten in the Gospels, when a physical appearance is described, it's very important. Matthew doesn't make a habit of describing what people are wearing or what they look like. But here, in verse 4, we learn this. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. I won't, I won't spend a lot of time talking about beekeeping in Israel in the first century, um, but John was eating wild honey. This was pretty dangerous. Um, it could have contained diseases or toxins or things like that. He was living on locust. Um, this is the diet of the poorest of the poor. This is, uh, this is a diet of survival. This is not lavish. This is not um, him choosing these. This is, this is necessity. John is identifying here with the poorest of poor, and he's wearing camel hair and a leather belt. That's going to become very important in just a second. Skip back just a verse to, to verse 2. John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John looks out into the landscape of all those who are coming to see him. And again, people are flocking to hear John the Baptist. And we'll get to why in just a second. And this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, to understand what is going on, we have to back up just a bit. Okay, so please bear with me. If we go to Malachi chapter 4, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Okay, it is the final prophecy. It's the final um, spoken word of God out of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 says this. This is God speaking through Malachi. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, 
I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So so God, as the Old Testament is wrapping up, as he's speaking through the prophet Malachi, he says, hey, look, there's coming a day where I'm going to send my Messiah. I'm going to send the Savior. But before he comes, I'm sending Elijah. Now, we remember Elijah from the books of Kings. He's a passionate prophet. This is the one who goes up against the prophets of Baal and the fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. He's taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. We know Elijah. Elijah was fiery. Elijah was passionate. He didn't like evil. He didn't like the idolatry going on and he stood up against it. And God says, I'm going to send him again. And when you see Elijah, you know that the Messiah is not far behind. I want to point out a few things. Um, Verse 1, we learn that John is preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Do you remember where Elijah was taken up in chariots of fire to heaven? The wilderness of Judea. And do you remember, um, and I know you're all familiar, you probably read this this morning, 2 Kings 1, um, when the people come to the king and say, hey, there's a guy causing a disturbance out here. And the king goes, well, who is it? And he says, I don't know. He's wearing camel hair and a leather belt in verse 8. And then the king goes, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. He's trouble. And John shows up on the scene in the Judean wilderness wearing camel hair, which is like a Brillo pad, by the way. This is not a luxurious outfit. He shows up and every astute Jewish person at that time would have gone, oh, is it? Is this what I think it is? Because between Malachi and John, there's 400 years. God is silent for 400 years. Silence can be deafening when you're waiting, can't it? And the silence of heaven is some of the most painful silence you can feel. I have an eight-year-old. If there's silence in my home for about 30 minutes, I go looking. Because I'm already wondering what I have to replace, what I have to clean. If I disappear for 48 hours... My, my wife just assumes I'm gone. She's moving on. She's closing that chapter of her life. <laughs> 400 years. That's 20 generations. If a couple had two children, every generation for 20 generations, you would have over a million descendants. And in that time, God is silent. There's political turmoil. There's the coming in of the Roman Empire who oppress people and levy outrageous taxes. There are some estimates that say that Israelites were paying 90% of their income to Rome at the time. There's division. There's religious fracturing. You have the rising of the groups called the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. People are feeling hopeless. They're feeling hopeless because there was this promise 
from Malachi that God was going to send his Messiah and 400 years go by. Let's be really honest. How long, how long would it take for you to start doubting? How long would you be okay with spiritual famine? How long would you continue to pray if it felt like every time you prayed, it just stopped right at the ceiling and God's not answering? How long until you just take matters into your own hands and try and do it yourself because you feel abandoned and alone and like nothing's going to come to pass? And 400 years later, the silence is broken by a man in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, Matthew is written in the Greek, in Koine Greek. Uh, it's kind of a common Greek. It's what, it's kind of everyday casual Greek. And the word for repent there is metanoia. Metanoia means a changing of your mental faculties that results in behavioral change. So you change your beliefs and that changes your actions, right? This is some of the, you get the best results with um, personal change, whether you're making resolutions or whether you're fighting an addiction or whatever it may be through changing your identity and beliefs. Okay, behavioral modification rarely works. Changing the belief about who you are actually produces results. Metanoia. But John didn't speak Greek. John spoke Hebrew, probably Aramaic, but he spoke Hebrew. The word for repent in Hebrew is a little different. It's teshuva. And I love this. You know what teshuva means? Come home. Come home. You've, you've strayed. You've left the safety. You've left the place where your father is. In, in repentance, in our culture, we always view repentance as this kind of like negative thing where we have to come clean and admit that we messed up. And, and, and yes, that's part of it. The confession is part of it. But it's an invitation. Come back. Come back to where it's safe. Come back to where your father is. Come back to where there's food and there's a place to sleep and there's safety and security because the people of God at this time were practicing religion externally, but their hearts were far from God. There was no heartfelt transformation. There was no relationship. It was just, we go to church, we go to temple, we do, this, we do the festivals three times a year. And God is saying, I am not after your begrudging submission to rules and laws, and I am not after your external morality or your white-knuckle discipline. I am after your heart. I want more. And too often we think it suffices God and pleases him to offer up these external actions when we have no concern and no love for God in our hearts. And that's not what he's asking for. Isaiah chapter 1, what does God say to the nation of Israel? You bring forth your sacrifices and your offerings, but who has required these things of you? Who has asked this of you? What's your heart? And the invitation from John 
The thing that is said before the Messiah comes is this. Yeshua. Come home. I think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. When he comes to his senses, what does he do? He goes home. And as he's going home, he's reciting the speech he's going to give his dad. Right? Dad, I'm sorry. I messed up. I'll work with your servants. You don't have to treat me like a son. Just take me back. And when his dad sees him off on the horizon, what does the dad do? He runs. Dads don't run in Hebrew culture. They don't. It would be dishonoring. It would lessen your social standing. But the father goes, that's my kid. I don't care. I'm running. I'm going to run to my kid. He runs and he wraps his arms around the son and he puts a robe around him. Do you know why he wraps his arms around the son? This is often missed. Because the people in the town would have been picking up stones to stone the prodigal son to death. And right at the precipice of death, the father wraps his arms around the son. He says, it's okay. You came home. You came home. John the Baptist stands out in the wilderness and he says, Teshuvah, come home. Believer in Christ this morning, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how far you've gone or how many times you've messed up. Come home. You have not out the love of God. You have not gone so far that God regrets saving you. He wants his children home. John gives us a, a reason why here, though. Um, he says, for the kingdom of God has come near. I don't know, uh, men in the room, I don't know if you're like me, my parents came up on December 24th to celebrate um, Christmas Eve, and we had a big meal. December 23rd, I had this kind of sinking feeling like, I should go buy some Christmas gifts. Um, And so I was like, Caroline, get in the car. We have to go. So we went to the mall, which was a crazy idea. Because they were coming. And the time was upon us. And what John is saying, he's going, come home because he's coming. He's on his way. He's coming. Repent. The invitation for you today, wherever you are, wherever you stand, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, the invitation today the one that we should not rush past is come home, return, come back. He will accept you with open arms. Still wrestling with sin? Come back. Still wrestling with doubt? Come back. Still have big questions? Come back still don't know exactly what God thinks about this thing or that thing, come back. Come home. May 2024 be a year where we rededicate our hearts and recommit our lives to Christ. 
where our resolutions are not pursuing more discipline over things that we're dissatisfied in that will last us a max of 14 to 20 days. May our resolution this year be Tashuva. Come home to the Father who loves us, who welcomes us, who wants us in his presence because he's inviting you. You know, we all have areas where whether you make resolutions or not, we all have areas of disappointment in our life where we think, this year I'm going to do better. We call these Maslow's gaps or formation gaps in our lives. I'm going to do better at this thing or I'm going to get better in this subject or I'm going to be more present and put my phone down. All those are good. Discipline's a good thing. But before anything else, come home. First Presbyterian Church, people of God, this is the good news of the gospel. This is your invitation. Come back. Let's pray. Father, this morning we admit that we have leaned on our own understanding and tried in our own power countless times. We get frustrated at timing that doesn't match up with our timing. And we take the reins of our lives and like Martin Luther once said, if left to my own devices, I would quickly wreck it. And Lord, we try and fix situations and often make them worse. We try and make our name great. We try to go out there and make a name for ourselves. And in the end, what we learn from John the Baptist is his life wasn't about him. His life was about you. And what we learn from great heroes of the faith is they lived in the shadow of Jesus Christ and pointed to him. And so, Father, this morning, we ask that you would convict our hearts. Point out the areas in our lives where we have strayed from you, where we hold things back from you, where we do not submit to your lordship. And, Lord, may we repent We don't like the word repent. It means we did something wrong. We don't like to deal with that in our modern context. But Lord, your grace is sufficient to cover our wrongdoings. And the invitation is to please come home. And so Lord, this morning and into 2024, we ask that we come home and that we stay there. And we love you, Lord. Watch over us as we continue in worship. In Christ's name we pray.